Dr. Dale on Quail, bringing you the latest news and views about all things quail in Texas. Brought to you by the Rolling Plains Quail Research Foundation, preserving the wild quail hunting heritage of Texas for this and future generations. Major support for this podcast comes from Gordian Sons Outfitters. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to Dr. Dale on Quail. I'm Gary Joyner with the Texas Farm Bureau. Dr. Dale Rollins is on the road again this month, visiting with a great resource at the Texas Parks and Wildlife Department. That's John McLaughlin. He is the point man for quail in West Texas. Dr. Rollins, let's go to you in Abilene. Thank you, Gary. It's, uh, as always, it's good to be with you and the listeners this month, and we've got a special guest. I'm on location in Abilene today, and our special guest this afternoon is John McLaughlin. John is the West Texas Quail Program Leader for Texas Parks and Wildlife Department. So welcome, John. Uh, welcome, Dr. Rollins. I sure do appreciate having me on the show and uh, happy to participate, so thanks so much. Well, we're... Uh, we appreciate the opportunity to visit with you. I've uh, got a number of questions and issues that basically Parks and Wildlife Department rides herd over. And as your point man for quail in North Texas, well, in West Texas, we appreciate you taking time to uh, visit with our listeners this afternoon. I know you got your master's degree at uh, Texas Tech, but give me your 30-second elevator speech, John, as far as uh, what your background is. Yeah, of course. And, uh, yeah, again, thanks so much for having me on the show. So um, I think uh, I've been here for three and a half years now. So as, as many folks know, I'm actually a, a New England native. I uh, grew up there and, and went to the University of New Hampshire. And I think like a, a lot of young biologists, a lot of young wildlife technicians, I, I looked west for, uh, for opportunity uh, to get into the wildlife field and spent some time in the Dakotas, Nevada, and then up in Washington and Oregon. And um, it was actually during a job in uh, Minnesota working with sharp-tailed grouse that I came across the, the, the job announcement to come down to Texas and work at Texas Tech and, and study quail at the Four Sixes Ranch. And so it was just an opportunity I couldn't pass up. And so um, came down here, got my graduate degree, uh, left for a few years to go back to Oregon, do some big game work, but uh, eventually circled back. Uh, I, I enjoyed it so much. And when I saw this job opportunity, um, really couldn't resist and uh, happy that back in 2017, I was offered the job and had a opportunity to work with a lot of great partners, including uh, the Research Ranch and you, Dr. Rollins, and so it's been a, a, a great time so far. Well, we uh, certainly appreciate appreciate you and the fact that we have someone here really representing quail interest in North and West Texas. So I'd like to delve into the politics just a little bit about that. Prior to your appointment uh, here in West Texas, uh, Robert Patters, your colleague down in uh, South Texas, he was a statewide quail program leader. And uh, I think he said about four years ago, as I recall, where there was talk among various stakeholders in Texas, and we had the opportunity to visit with uh, Kelly Thompson, who uh, chairs the Upland Game Bird Advisory Committee, and he was sympathetic, as well as some other folks in Parks and Wildlife Department. So uh, we were able to... Uh, to petition for a quail specialist to serve West Texas. And uh, we got John several years ago. And again, uh, I know many of us are, are happy with the fact that uh, you're representing our regional interests as it relates to quail. Exactly what what do you see, jo John, as your job responsibilities or your job duties? Are they beyond quail or is it just quail? Or where do we stand on that? 
Well, I think, you know, obviously this is such a, a big state and a small game program. So within Texas Parks and Wildlife, I work within the small game program. And so, you know, we do have oversight over many upland game bird species. But, you know, to, to your point, Dr. Rollins, I think, you know, when this position was created and all the constituents got together and said, hey, you know, we want a voice up in this part of the state. We, we feel like perhaps we're not being heard or, you know, that perhaps attention isn't being focused on the rolling plains um, as it should be. And I think the rolling plains represents such a, such a stronghold for quail, not just in Texas, but certainly nationally, um, that the interest was in, was in, was in getting uh, a stronger focus in, in that part of the state. And so quail uh, remain first and foremost my priority. Um, of the four species, certainly uh, bobwhites and scale quail are, are, again, the focus. And so uh, I try and stay in that lane as much as I can. But certainly, uh, you know, you get talking about pheasants and chickens at other, at other points in time. But the focus really is um, on quail. And for, for me personally, um, you know, I think communication has been one of the biggest uh, factors we've seen in, in this, this disconnect between what's happening across the state and perhaps what's happening in the rolling plains. So I've tried to add uh, that element. I've tried to improve uh, the relationship with our field staff and, and work with them on the ground and learn from them and, and by product, you know, learn about the landowners and, and the dynamics that are, are North and West Texas. And then certainly communicating what's happening on the ground with our biologists, um, what projects they're involved in, uh, what type of deco guidance they're providing, and then translate that to the constituency. And that includes both, you know, folks at the research ranch and other NGOs, and then also, also with our state and federal partners. So I, I think communication is at the core of that. But, of course, we want to turn and translate that communication into action on the ground um, to, uh, to support bobwhite population. And so uh, we work that through many different angles. I know we'll talk about some of that later today. But I think communication is, has really been a key, um, uh, for me, a key goal. Well, we applaud your efforts and wish you the best. And obviously, you, you have, within the par department, you've got some great quail people. But you've got a lot of people that are kind of on the fringe. And, uh, you know, they're interested in quail, but other things, primarily deer, take up their time and so forth. So I want you to, I want you to uh, carry the banner high and, and hopefully recruit and uh, just uh, make those uh, various individual students of quail. And I've had a number of them over the last six, seven years in my quail master's class and always enjoy having them. And then you've got some key WMAs, for example, the Matador and Gene Howe WMA and uh, the, the personnel and staff at those uh, obviously hold a very special place in any public quail hunter's life because it's one, uh, those are two of the few public land opportunities for quail in West Texas. Uh, so, again, carry the, the banner high with those. John, you've been with us about three and a half years. Uh, to, I believe it was February 2017 when I took you quail hunting out in Howard County to get to know you a little bit. And uh, I'm, I'm going to I want to caution you that sometimes correlation and cause and effect aren't always in a causal relationship. We've all been schooled in that. But, uh, you know, as I think back to about February 2017, the quail numbers in West Texas have basically gone down and down and down since that time. Now, I'm not pointing that at you. Again, just the fact that correlation <laughs> and cause and effect, we'll be talking about some other factors that can share that same relationship. But I often get... Uh, Reminded that uh, Rollins, if you were a football coach, you'd be history. So, uh, what do you what is what do you see as the current status of quail in West Texas? And uh, I guess you know where do you hope to go here in the next 
two to five years relative to some of your efforts with that. Uh, yeah, of course. And so I'll apologize to all the native Texans that they've got a Yankee running their West Texas quail program. But uh, <laughs> hopefully, uh, you know, I've been a lot of years out West, and, and I think I'm coming up on seven here in Texas, uh, all told. So uh, I think I learned a thing or two, but I do apologize. Um, you know, certainly, uh, you know, since the big boom in 16, you know, we, we've really just, we tapered off uh, the following year, and then we've been in this, you know, perpetual lull cycle. Uh, for a, a few years. And, you know, I was thinking back to conversations you and I have had in the past and thinking about conversations I've had with other private landowners. And I think what we've, what we've talked about consistently is that you don't need all the stars to align for, for bobwhites to increase their populations, but you need enough stars to align for conditions to be right uh, for them to, to take hold, have a productive nesting season, and then to carry that over the following year and hopefully have another nesting season. So I think it was maybe 2018 that we had, you know, really high quality, I think, rains and moisture coming out of the winter. And then we got into summer and it just got hot, real hot, 100-degree days, drought-like conditions. And I believe it was the following year that we really didn't have great winter moisture, got hot in the summer, and then we finally got some late-season rain in August and September if folks remember, I think it was a couple of years ago, but we had some heavy rains and the temperatures got really cold. And so when we actually had broods on the ground later in the year, uh, we were concerned about those. So we want to see a bit more consistent, uh, persistent uh, precipitation, you know, annually. And then importantly, it, it, as we all know, it doesn't take, you know, just a single year of, of good production. We really need two to three years of, of high quality production in, in to improve rangeland health and as a byproduct you know, the health of quail habitat, and furthermore, for, for, for nesting success. And so I think we just haven't gotten that, that combination of conditions. Obviously, you know, we've seen habitat degraded across uh, the state during these, uh, these ephemeral droughts that we've been having. And um, so the range condition just hasn't been um, as good as we'd like it to really see populations uh, accelerate here uh, in the short term. You know, certainly, you know, looking long term, I, I would just encourage any private landowner or anyone out there who uh, who is involved in property, whether you lease it or uh, share it with a family member that, you know, we just need to continue to think about what I, what I would say is priming the pump so that, you know, when those conditions do arise and, and they will come, <laughs> the conditions will come that we can prime the pump that we can take advantage when conditions improve. So I would I would uh, advise anyone out there to, you know, spend this time really shoring up your your, your property, you're looking at your grazing plan if you're running uh, cattle. You know, if you've got a uh, property that maybe has some, some prickly pear um, encroachment, you know, look at attacking those areas of weakness during this year, or potentially uh, treating cedar, mesquite encroachment. And so I just think that uh, we can do things in the short term to prime that pump and prepare us. And also, of course, um, you know, if you are uh, still hunting in these down years, I, I think we would all just express caution and, you know, maybe consider ceasing hunting or, or limiting that to, to only 5 to 10% of your population. Those are, those are um, numbers that have been researched quite a bit. And uh, so we would just, you know, say prime the pump, exhibit caution with hunting, and, um, and that will help you, you know, manage your expectations for when conditions do arise. Well, that's a good strategy. I tell you, sometimes – I'll use the Rolling Plains Quail Research Ranch as an example. When I go up there over the last year, I typically just I wag my head saying, you know, it, we don't have any grazing. Uh, but as I drive around, the company, the, I'm sorry, the, the habitat just looks what I'll call blasé. 
We're not seeing yeah. uh, we're not seeing good growth on our silver blue stem, which is our major nesting grass. And when I thumb through pictures from 2007 and eight, and I think, oh my gosh, look how much grass we had. So uh, that grass just melts away, and as the grass melts away, the prickly pear becomes more and more evident. And uh, some people would say problematic. I don't know if I'd say that or not. Uh, I think of prickly pear's drought insurance for nesting cover, but uh, tough times ahead for quail and uh, just our recent uh, research uh, from March, April, and May suggests that we're we're having some pretty steady losses of our birds, mostly to predators, of course. And uh, I think our breeding abundance, our breeding capital, may be quite low this year. So, point being, there's going to be a lot of anxious ears, I'm sure mine and yours included, uh, during May to get out there and just try to assess what our breeding capital may be on some sites. Yeah, of course, and, uh, go ahead. Go ahead. I was just going to say, you know, and the other thing about priming that pump is, you know, we do think about caring for that habitat. You know, the two things that we know are, are most important for, for quail are, you know, or and really their habitat is retaining that moisture and then dissipating heat across the landscape. So uh, to your point, you know, when we don't have those grasses or those forb communities, um, you know, we lose moisture and, and, it, and it's hotter on the landscape, which makes it more difficult for quail. So, you know, uh, those are just things to, to keep in mind as, as you're walking on your ranch, you know, where are these, where are these weak areas, these weak points that we can, we can address in the short term again to, to try and secure long-term success. I want to I want us to get on get on Google Earth, if you will, and I want to start off kind of at what I'll call the ranch level, and then I want to zoom out to the landscape or to the region level and talk about some of the factors that are impacting quail and, and get your perspective on them. Uh, the first one being habitat fragmentation, and anytime I hear the word fragmentation, I think of a grenade, and when the pin is pulled and the explosive goes off, there's a lot of things get damaged. Fragmentation works in some fairly nefarious ways uh, as it relates to quail habitat. And you, I'm sure you've already run across people who said, you know, nothing's changed, but I don't have quail. I used to go out with my 410 and hunt the uh, fence lines behind the house, and uh, nothing's changed. Well, what? how do you answer that question when, when a landowner tells you nothing's changed on my place? Yeah, well, it's it's a it's something we hear a lot, and uh, this isn't restricted to to Texas. I heard this out west. I heard this in the Midwest as well that that nothing has changed. And so, uh, my first thought is is to take them at their word that you know that that they have been a good steward and that their property, um, you know, perhaps may be in excellent condition. But to your point, there's this there's this thing that's happening around our private landowners. This fragmentation, this addition of roads, this breaking up of, of larger ranches that were perhaps into, into smaller smaller properties or perhaps subdivisions encroaching on your property if you're closer to some of these metro areas. And so um, sometimes, you know, you can be doing all the right things, but, you know, over time, slowly, your property uh, within a given ecoregion can become an island. And so when, you're, when your property becomes an island, um, in a sense, um, your population is more susceptible to, to certain, um, you know, conditions that are beyond your control. So, for example, you know, if you have an island, you know, you may be more susceptible to a severe uh, winter weather event. And if you lose those quail during, say, that winter weather event and the properties around you aren't supporting quail, suddenly it's, there's no quail immigrating and emigrating out of your property or coming in and, and going and having that normal flow that a population would have. And so suddenly 
slowly over time, the population on your property can be degraded uh, without there being a significant degradation of the habitat on your property. So that's my default is is to believe them. But what we also see is that there has been a degradation of habitat on properties over time that sometimes is imperceptible to an individual landowner. And it's not that they don't care. It's not that their family doesn't care. It's not that they haven't done the things to take care of their property. But we we see things like woody vegetation encroachment, so mesquite and cedar encroaching on properties that, you know, over time, uh, over time, it's, it's sort of like watching a kid grow. If you're around that kid every day, you don't really notice it. But, you know, as your uncle comes at Christmas, they usually go, whoa, look how much Jimmy's grown or, or Sarah's grown. And um, it, it's those small changes over time or, or also I, I think we might talk about exotic grasses here in a little bit, slow, at slow encroachment. So it's, it, it's sometimes imperceptible and happens over a long period of time. And, and, that's, and that's tough uh, for many landowners who, to your point, say nothing has changed, the management hasn't changed, um, but yet we're still losing quail. And I, all the time I remind people that you say nothing's changed, but let's look at the last 50 years and, and what's happened to the number of farm ponds on your property. Oh, gosh, yeah, we've got lots of farm ponds. Or get it, when you're flying in an airplane uh, at 20,000 feet or so and the sun is low in the sky, uh, it just looks like diamonds reflecting back from the water in a normal year. And that changes the landscape a lot. We could talk about that relative to things like raccoons, if you will. And that's another thing. That's a biotic thing that's changed a lot over the last 40 years is the presence and number of raccoons across the landscape. So there's a lot of things. But I guess one of the things I'd like to encourage people to do is, okay, so nothing's changed on your property. But, again, zoom out if you're on Google Earth. Zoom out and get up there about 30,000 feet and look what's happened to you, and you, you'll really be able to see that aspect of fragmentation, really regardless of where you're at in the state, uh, more so along I-35 and a little bit less so out in the, uh, in the Trans-Pecos and the Permian Basin, but then you think about all the oil infrastructure that's happened over the last uh, 15 years out in the, in the Permian Basin. Um, habitat fragmentation is real, and uh, I don't know how we're going to combat it, but uh, it, it's a big issue. You mentioned exotic grasses there, John, and, and certainly if we talked to if we were talking to our colleagues in South Texas, that'd probably be number one on their list of things that has changed over the last 50 years, and that poses uh, in their minds one of the greatest threats to uh, Bob White conservation in South Texas. We don't have we don't have the degree of exotic grasses like uh, places like uh, Hebronville does, but we've got our fair share when we talk about some of those Bermuda grass, weeping love grass, old world blue stems. I'm going to convene a group later this month out in the Midland area to talk about layman love grass, which is a major exotic grass out there. But are there, let me pose the question to you, John. If you've got a, if you've got a rancher and he's got 400 acres and 350 of it's in some kind of tame pasture, improved pasture, what are some options that you might encourage him to do to think about quail? Or maybe set a scenario like this. Dad had that much improved pasture. Now dad's gone and junior's taken over. And quail are probably more on his radar than perhaps they were for the father. So what are some things you can recommend to him in that situation? 
Yeah, well, and that's that's something we've seen, um, you know, time and time again, you know, uh, historically, you know, pastures planted some of these exotics. And, you know, originally, as we as many of us know, you know, that was that was seen as a way to increase forage production on our property to provide to provide drought insurance. And so, um, you know, those those folks thought that they were, you know, doing things to to improve their operations and, and, and weren't necessarily thinking about the impacts of the landscape or, or potentially outside of their property. And so um, you mentioned some of them, you know, old world blue stem and, um, and certainly um, uh, uh, buffalo grass and others up here that, that can be a real challenge. And what I would say is that every property is unique. And so I would encourage folks to reach out to their local um, TPWD biologist, to their local AgriLife extension biologist, um, to their local quail forever biologist, whomever it might be, and to have them come out and take a site visit because really every property is is unique and individual. It's going to take a unique and individual approach. And so for those folks who might have, yeah, 350 acres of a 400-acre property that are covered up in these grasses, you know, we need to understand what the grass is. And for some of these, we have established, you know, regimes using herbicide, prescribed fire, in some cases mowing. Uh, repetitively over multiple years to try and slowly change the composition of that grasses through time. So what I would say to people is it's not going to happen overnight. It's not going to happen, you know, 2022, you're not going to have, you know, this native grass, but, you know, starting there, starting with that communication train chain, having someone out to your property, potentially looking at the cost share opportunities that might be available to you through the uh, U S department of agriculture and, the Natural Resources Conservation Service. So I think information is the most powerful tool when you're starting a property that, yeah, dad, mom, dad gave you that you want to convert. And so I would just encourage you to reach out and communicate. And I think those folks who are on the ground who have those site visits, they will get more out of those two or three hours uh, than they could ever get, you know, scrolling through Google or doing anything like that. And I think our biologists and, and many other uh, partner biologists across the state are, are more than willing to come out and excited to talk to you about uh, converting. And I would just say that actually the U.S. Senate just passed a, a resolution on March, I believe it was March 26, to make April 21. Uh, April 2021, um, Native Plant Month. And so I think there's a growing recognition of the importance of native plants. And so uh, we would just encourage you to reach out and get that process started um, uh, with any of the partners. I always try to emphasize plant identification. Two of my basic ground rules are know your plants and know how to manipulate them. So uh, if now would be a good time to get Rick Lennox's field guide out there and begin to learn those plants. And if you can learn 50 plants, you'll be the most botanically literate person in your circles, I suspect. So that's your homework assignment. John, we're about <laughs> halfway from allotment, so I'm going to speed us up just a little bit. Uh, we could talk about overgrazing, which is a certainly a common um, ill, and it seems like especially this year, but uh, we're just waiting on that two-inch rain. And, again, uh, some timely deferments uh, once the rains come back and uh, – Hopefully, over the next two years, bring our grass crop back. And then prescribed burning, uh, which uh, goes hand in hand with that grassland restoration effort, and I encourage that uh, to think more about prescribed burning if it's not one of the tools in your toolbox. I want to get on to some of the ongoing efforts within TPW's uh, domain and uh, maybe start with the WMAs. So what are some things that are going on at various WMAs that uh, our listeners ought to be aware of? 
Yeah, absolutely. And I really appreciate asking about those. As you mentioned, uh, some of those iconic ones before, the Matador, Gene Howe. Uh, then we think about the Gussingling, perhaps in East Texas, Chaparral down in South Texas and the Black Gap out West. So we have a, a great network of, of WMAs. I mean, uh, their primarily purpose, their, their primary purpose is to provide, you know, recreational opportunity, but then, of course, to serve as, as um, demonstration sites. So they're representative of the eco-regions that they're in. And our goal is to um, uh, do management, do surveys, do research out on those properties uh, that can be translated onto private properties. And I know that the Rolling Plains Quail Research uh, Ranch and Foundation have been involved in, in, in various research, including um, uh, work on the Matador with scale quail and translocation and other things. And so, um, you know, right now, I think one of the exciting things that we've been working on is, uh, is really trying to pour uh, additional partner dollars. So state dollars, federal dollars, and NGO dollars into those properties um, to, uh, to manage them. And so um, we've been able to uh, use partner dollars, match those as federal dollars, and do a, um, a great amount of woody vegetation removal. We talked before about you know, mesquite and cedar encroachment uh, in the Rolling Plains. And, and so Chip Ruthven, the manager up at the Matador, and his great crew, great crew of biologists and technicians working up there uh, to annually uh, burn that property, um, to, to uh, remove um, that woody vegetation encroachment, and then to really try and restore that uh, to, uh, to an area uh, that's more representative of what conditions used to be like. And I think for a long time, the question has been, well, you know, does management make a difference? And so uh, as of late, we've been trying to answer that question. And so uh, we've sponsored a research project last year to look at uh, grassland bird abundance on the Matador WMA and compare that to sites off of, off of the WMA. And what we found was that, um, you know, two of the top three species um, on the Matador were grassland bird obligates, which means that they need that grassland habitat to persist. And that was different than what we saw off of the Matador, where we saw much more generalist species uh, in terms of our songbird community. And so, you know, that tells us that we are making an impact, that we are shifting the bird community. And certainly we know that these grassland communities can be more suitable for quail than these, than these, uh, these woody vegetation encroached areas. And so we're excited to see that. We're excited to you know, continue to invest in that property and, and see if we can continue to shift that bird community dynamic. Um, but that's very exciting for us because I think at the end of the day, people say, well, what's our return on investment in terms of habitat management? What are we getting for our dollar? And uh, we can say all the good things we want, but unless we can really show the data to support it, uh, it can be difficult. So that's very exciting for us. We look forward to continuing that research. And, um, and, uh, and then we're also uh, investing those same kind of dollars um, in the chaparral to do prescribed burning and to do disc trips out there. Uh, we're investing that money at the Gus Angley in the East Texas uh, to support their management efforts. So um, we, are, we are heavily involved in our WMAs and invested and, um, and, and hope for the best. Well, you mentioned Chip Rufin and kudos to him and, and his colleagues up there because uh, they've really, in my opinion, transformed the uh, Matador WMA over the last 20 years. It used to be pretty uh, overgrazed and pretty good blue quail habitat, and uh, now Chip's got it in such good condition, and when we, when we translocated blue quail in there, I think it was too good for them, and uh, so they <laughs> moved further. John, move on uh, back. I don't remember when, maybe in the time frame about 2000, early 2000s, uh, in various meetings that I was going to down at Austin at Parks and Wildlife Headquarters, they begin to use the term joint ventures quite a bit. Uh, can you give us 
and a lot of people speak very highly about these various joint ventures. Can you uh, describe what a joint venture is and, and maybe give an example of how, how you think it's going to be helping Bob White's? Yeah, of course. Well, uh, so, so we, yeah, we refer these as U.S. US migratory bird uh, joint ventures, and so they are authorized by the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. And, and uh, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, ha- I'd have to look up on Google how many there are. I believe there's seven or eight here, just here in Texas, joint ventures. And so, uh, obviously, they are. I should just say they do follow, you know, ecological boundaries. So um, they don't quite match up with the the TPW ecoregions that we often talk about, like. Rolling Plains, High Plains, Transpecos, uh, but they match up fairly well with those. And so uh, the purpose uh, of the joint ventures was to bring together really a public-private partnership and bring many voices to the table through one organization to affect management on the ground. And so the joint ventures have historically uh, provided a scientific expertise to work that's going on on the ground. They've been able to develop monitoring plans and tie in that monitoring to what we're doing on the ground because, again, importantly, uh, we're doing a, a lot of work with private landowners. We've got cost uh, share programs, incentive programs to help landowners, uh, but we want to know that that's having an impact. So the joint ventures uh, in Texas have been very active. They're uh, great partners. Um, again, they're, they're comprised of state agency personnel, federal agencies, uh, NGOs, and many others. And uh, for anyone that's interested, you can just look up uh, U.S. Uh, bird joint ventures on Google, and, and it, there's some great fact sheets on there. But they're also able to really leverage the dollars that we put into those um, joint ventures uh, for the greatest good. And so um, we've been excited here uh, to have some, some great joint venture coordinators who have helped us uh, establish uh, cost share, again, incentive programs uh, who, have, who have been able to uh, bring on additional capacity, additional personnel uh, who are aligned with the mission of TPWD and RPQRR and many others uh, for Bob White's. And so uh, we see them as a vessel to deliver uh, Bob White's specific uh, management practices on the ground. And um, they work directly hand-in-hand with our biologists. And so I think, importantly, uh, they really are able to advocate for upland game bird issues within that migratory bird venture who are focused on a suite of species. So I think, you know, for us to be involved there, to provide a voice for quail, to provide expertise and guidance where we can, uh, really make sure that, you know, bobites are considered in these large-scale planning efforts and these large-scale monitoring efforts um, so that the community itself, the quail community itself, uh, feels like they have representatives. And another thing, as a quail hunter in the quail hunting community, we've got to always be reminded of our relevance in the whole conservation picture and the number of quail hunters going down. So any ties that we can make to that, what I'll call the non-game bird community, uh, the canary in the prairie, if, if that's what I propose the Bob White is. But it gives us something to hang our hat on that the money we've spent on quail habitat is, again, hopefully impacting positively a number of birds that uh, hunters may not be uh, primarily aware of, but a lot of other people are. John, I'm going to move us on down our list of questions here and, and talk about some of what I call frequently asked quail questions, FAQQs. And the first one I'm going to talk about, I find a little bit ironic. You did your master's research on supplemental feeding, and we're going to get into that in just a second. But I find that a little ironic for a state game biologist. Typically, state game biologists are pretty cool on the idea of supplemental feeding. So, how do you handle that irony between 
what you did for your research and now what you're advocating or not advocating, as the case may be, in your role as a quail program leader. Yeah, of course. Well, actually, the supplemental feeding was actually, you know, one of the interesting things uh, when I saw that job announcement because uh, before I had, before I came to Texas Tech, I had spent very little time in Texas, but there was a perception that Texans love to feed wildlife, and so of uh, which, of course, I think there's many states that um, that that don't encourage that and don't like that, but certainly Texas uh, marches to the beat of its own drum, and so I was interested in that aspect and learning about. Uh, that management practice. And so uh, when I came down here, I, I tried to have an open mind and I really didn't know uh, much about the types of feeding programs that existed. And so I think for me, um, I always want to be guided by the data, by the science, by what I see and hear with my own eyes. And, um, and really, I think in my research at the four sixes, we did see that supplemental feeding and we did broadcast feeding. So, you know, there's Within the feeding community, there's some debate about what we call supplemental feeding, but we are broadcast feeding, so using a spreader uh, to spread milo across the property. And, you know, a, a big winter storm hit in my first field season there, and uh, what we saw is that birds that were receiving supplemental feed uh, survived at a higher rate uh, than those birds that were not receiving supplemental feed. And so, you know, based on my experience on the ground tracking birds, you know, and seeing that improvement in survival, that really showed me that perhaps there is some value here. Um, I only temper my opinion on it now, which is to say that that was, you know, a single study site in the Rolling Plains and that I don't know if that's translatable uh, to the rest of the counties across the state, but I think it provided the basis for other researchers and other investigators to, to work off of, to build off of, and potentially see if that style of feeding, that broadcast feeding, uh, can have an impact on quail populations. Certainly we have seen uh, quail um, biologists and enthusiasts in the southeastern United States, Georgia, Alabama, other places, uh, feeding more um, than, is, uh, than, than some folks over here, and they've seen positive results over there. So I don't think it's an open and shut uh, case for supplemental feeding. I just think we need to um, you know, really you know, ask ourselves, what, is the, what are these data telling us? Are they translatable to other ranches and counties? And um, if we don't feel like we've gotten there yet, then where can we expand this research into new areas? So, uh, yeah, you have to walk a fine line, but, um, but I, I do see value there. And, you know, if you have the time, energy, and will to feed um, and you want to do it, then, you know, I, 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 would, uh, I wouldn't stand in your way. <laughs> I totally agree. And, boy, what a study period we missed uh, this past Valentine's Day when we had the uh, snowpocalypse across most of West Texas. And uh, it would have been great to have that study going again this year just to uh, maybe drive home some of those findings. But uh, at least at the research ranch, we don't think we lost birds from starvation during the storm itself in the acute sense. But the next three weeks, we had quite a death loss of our birds at various sites. And we think it could have been caused by stress caused by those cold temperatures like food during that time. Let's move on to another uh, very popular uh, effort, uh, albeit uh, debatable, and, and that's predator management. John, where do you stand on that? Yeah, well, certainly uh, predator control, predator management, however you want to, you know, describe it. I think, you know, that's been another practice that's been around for a long time, and I think people, um, you know, they can see the results of a, of a predator kill on a quail, certainly for us that have followed quail and their radios. You know, when you come across that feather pile, it, it, it hurts you a little bit, especially, you know, when it's a hen in the, in, in the nesting season, really a gut punch, uh, if, if you will. But 
what I would uh, what I would say about predator control is, you know, we've seen it work in some instances, and and oftentimes these days a lot of folks point to the the south again, the southeast, the Georgia, Florida uh, of the world, and where they've had you know quite a bit of success with with predator control. And so, what I would just say about that is, it's um, it's it's one thing to look at the southeast and say predator control, predator management is working, and then you know, to try and do that on our property, on a property over here, unless you have the time, energy, and resources. And so I think that, you know, really any piecemeal approach to, you know, predator control is likely to, to fail, and that you know, really the benefits that have been seen have been very intense, very long-term, multi-landowner, you know, regional trapping efforts that have occurred at, at high cost to the landowners. And so um, I'm not saying that it can't work. And I think we're certainly open to, you know, more research on the topic, but um, it is a, uh, it, it's, you got to be committed to it if you really want it to work. And um, I would just say that you used a, an interesting term, which I think is, 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 is gaining popularity, which is, which is this idea of predator management versus predator control. And I think predator control is historically referred to the trapping of wildlife and removing or the trapping of wildlife and removing them, whereas predator management talks more about a system of management where you know habitat management is up front, then we control those predator you know pits or those predator holes on your property, and uh, and and then you know further on you know potentially trapping and removing removing predators. And so I think that it, it's it's a it's a all encompassing approach. Um, I think that there are things you can do in terms of the habitat prior to focusing on predators. But uh, if you've got the other things in place and, and you want to do it, I would just, again, uh, advocate that you get with an expert, uh, a local biologist or someone else to talk about that program and, um, and, and really see if it's, it's right for your property um, or if your time and energy uh, couldn't be spent better somewhere else. So. And I would just caution, don't always equate predator control with coyote control because coyotes may not be your worst enemy out there from a quail standpoint. Uh, John, following radio collar birds around, and this spring has been a really tough year for us on three different sites, the raptors have just hammered us. I know they're protected. What do you recommend when somebody's saying the hawks are really taking us out here? What can we do about predation on quail from raptors? Yeah, it's certainly a tough topic. And, and raptors have been, I think, one of the, 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 one of the largest uh, wildlife success stories uh, really in the country, um, you know, through uh, the, Migratory Game, the Migratory Bird Treaty Act. And then uh, I think, as you've talked about, uh, the removal of some of those uh, pesticides, herbicides on the landscape. And so uh, we have seen numbers increase over time. I think, as you mentioned, there's not going to be a point where we, uh, where I think we open up a raptor season uh, anytime soon. So I think the the most important thing you can do is is to improve the habitat on your property to give quail as, as many hide hiding spots, as many covers, uh, areas, and shelters as you possibly can. And then you know perhaps if there are some old telephone poles on your property, and we see this a lot around old stock tanks and old windmills. Sometimes there's some old poles that run out there, you know, you can think about, you know, potentially removing those to remove predator perches and other things. And so I think it's a combination of improving the habitat for quail and trying to remove those attraction sources uh, for, for raptors. And certainly uh, some of those raptors are, are always going to be around. We're always going to see harriers and others, you know, patrolling the landscape. Um, so we just want to make it as difficult as we can for them to see a quail uh, when they're hovering above the landscape. So, um, you know, when you're driving around, I think you've talked about, 
you know, looking at the world through a quail's eyes at that, you know, six inch level. Well, you know, I think we can do the same for a quail and think about, you know, if you're flying 50 to 100 feet up, you know, what does the landscape look like? And again, maybe identifying by using Google Earth or other tools, the areas of weakness on your property where cover perhaps is lacking and where we might need to make some improvements. Okay, I agree with you. And after spending some time this uh, past March in Helicopter County quail, from a Harrier's perspective, believe me, our quail are very vulnerable right now from death from above. So uh, hopefully, again, when we get out of this La Nina weather pattern and get back in El Nino, we can grow some more uh, screening cover and grow some broomweed and hopefully insulate our birds a little bit better than we've been able to. A couple of quick items, John, to discuss uh, in the regulatory sense from Parks and Wildlife. The triple T permit. What is it, and where do we stand with it as being able to use it in a quail conservation sense? Uh, of course. So I think uh, you know anyone who works with deer in Texas owns private property. You know um, they're probably familiar with what we refer to as the trap transport and transplant permits, or the triple T as we colloquially call them. Um, so there's been a lot of interest, national interest and regional interest, in translocating quail over the past few years as a, a population restoration tool. I know many partners are working on research projects, including uh, the research ranch. I believe you guys have two uh, research projects going on. And if you're not following the research ranch on Facebook, I'll give them a little plug. They have some great content on there with the pictures and the maps of birds moving around. Um, but the Triple T permit is a, is a state permitting program that would allow a private landowner to potentially move quail from one property in Texas to their property um, to potentially restore a population that has, um, has disappeared for, you know, whatever reason. And so um, a few years ago, we were approached about uh, potentially um, uh, starting this permit up for quail. Technically, it's been on it's been available for, I think, I, I want to say 15 or 20 years, but we've never actually issued a permit just because the science is, has not supported translocation. But as research begins to show uh, increasingly that translocation perhaps can be successful in the right settings under the right conditions with the right preparation, uh, there's been an inquiry. So uh, right now, uh, we had a series of triple, what we call triple T regional meetings with Texas Parks and Wildlife staff. So we went to all four of our administrative regions. We had over 50 Texas Parks and Wildlife biologists come to those meetings and provide input on the permit. And based on those meetings, we formed a, uh, what we call the, a, an ad hoc triple T committee uh, to assess the specific steps within the permitting process. And so that's ongoing. We had our first meeting uh, in February. And again, that's, that's TPWD employees. And so we're continuing to work towards developing a plan. And I, I think that we could potentially have an application process in place by the fall of 2022, so maybe 18 months from now. Uh, but that'll depend a lot on how this year goes with this ad hoc committee. But we continue to make steps, continue to make strides, and uh, continue to get feedback from, from them as well as uh, constituents like yourself and others. Well, John, as we come to the end of our time, I realized that my agenda was too busy for the allotted time. So I'm going to cut back on the Upland Game Bird Advisory Committee. I'll, I'll have to schedule an interview with uh, Kelly Thompson more to talk about that. But when you think about, again, our quail numbers are very low. Harvest can be an issue during the, those times of low abundance. And a lot of people want to look at Parks and Wildlife to do two things for them. They want to change the They want to lower the bag limit. Well, they wanted to reduce the season length. So to kind of bring our discussion to a close, how do you answer those two uh, concerns from the uh, from the hunting community as you get those? 
Yeah, absolutely. And and that's, that's not, again, not a conversation that's restricted to Texas. We hear that conversation in Upland game bird uh, regulations across the country. And so the primary purpose of the parks and wildlife regulations, the 15 bird bag limit in the season, which runs uh, end of October to the end of uh, February, roughly, um, you know, that's, that's, designed to provide the greatest flexibility and opportunity for individual landowners across the, across the state. And so it is our belief, and, and, and we believe we've supported this with some research that we've done, that, you know, statewide quail populations are not being impacted as it stands today by harvest um, across the season. And so, um, importantly, uh, there are some ranches where uh, management is, is high quality, where they are conservative with their hunting practices, and they are able to hunt birds year in and year out. And so we want to provide the flexibility to those landowners to harvest birds and to set their own harvest regulations uh, within their properties, provide them with the most opportunity. Um, certainly, there are other parts of the state where that may not be applicable. But um, you mentioned Robert Perez, our Upland Game Bird Program leader before. You know, he collaborated with some researchers, uh, 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 I guess it was quite a, over a decade ago now, but they did some research and found that, you know, in years of low abundance, what we find is that quail hunters uh, tend, to, tend to not go out as often. And if they do go out, they tend to harvest fewer birds. And so we really think there's a natural mechanism regulating harvest in terms of the number of birds on the landscape. But Certainly, we do understand that concern, and there is the opportunity for folks to over-harvest at a local scale, and we would encourage you not to do that. There's some great, um, uh, there's some great guides out there to managing harvest on your property, whether that be your property or your lease, uh, but we would just, uh, again, echo that. We don't think that harvest is, 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 is driving these statewide populations. That relates back to habitat management practices, fragmentation, invasive grasses, and the other things that we've discussed here today. So. Well, John, is, is there anything else uh, that you'd like to share with our listeners before we wrap up this session? Uh, no, I just, again, want to thank you so much for having me, Dr. Rollins. And, uh, no, I, I think for anyone listening out there, I think the Rolling Plains Quail Research Ranch is, is a great uh, avenue to get your information. And we have many, many other partners out there. Uh, a few I didn't mention, you know, it, we talked about grazing, you know, I think of the Texas Grazing Lands Coalition and others out there who can come to your property, provide you with guidance, and, uh, and get you started on a, on a path towards managing requirements on your property. So all you got to do is pick up the phone to reach out to any of our organizations, and we're very excited to talk about conservation and more excited to talk about quail, and uh, we'd be excited to talk to you. So. Well, again, John, I thank you for taking time to be with us and bring our listeners up to uh up to date on, on what um, Parks and Wildlife is doing and where they're going. And uh, certainly we hope to be going hand in hand with them as we watch for the return of the Bob White. All we were asking for is 2015-16 levels. We'll all be happy. Yes, Gary, sir. I'm going to turn it back to you in the studio. I, d I would encourage our listeners, though, uh, to, to get out early mornings this month and be doing some whistle counts. There's instructions on our website, quailresearch.org on how to conduct those. It's not rocket science. And be sure, and uh, if you will, share those results with me at our uh, on our Facebook page because uh, interested listeners want to know. And with that, Gary, we'll turn it back to you and look forward to visiting with you next month. Thank you.
Well, thank you, Dr. Dale, and special thanks to our guest, John McLaughlin, for joining us this month. We appreciate the good information and your passion for quail. If you would like more information about whistle counts and all the other great information from the Rolling Plains Quail Research Foundation, go to the website of quailresearch.org. There you'll find all the information you need, including past podcasts of Dr. Dale on quail. I'm Gary Joyner with the Texas Farm Bureau, thanking you for being with us this month. Until next time. Support from Gordian Sons Outfitters makes Dr. Dale on Quail possible. Gordian Sons, the finest hunting and fly fishing shop to be found. Find out more at GordianSons.com.